Nick, I'm really excited to announce that we have something brand new in the works to help our fourth year medical students who have matched into OBGYN get prepared for their internship and residency. Yeah. Last year, you guys may have seen on Twitter and Instagram the hashtag OBGYN intern challenge. And this year, we're making it even bigger and better with a huge team of experts in education, including ourselves, to prepare you to enter residency on day one, ready to rock. So if you're interested and want to sign up, this is going to be a month-long OBGYN intern challenge where we incorporate podcasts, text-based questions, and even trivia nights um, that will hopefully be both fun and educational. Check out the website www.obgyninternchallenge.com to find out more information and figure out how you can enroll. We should have enrollment open soon, so stay tuned. So Nick, I'm really glad we had the OBG project to refer to when we made this HS episode. Yeah, you know, and actually I would even go back to say with cholestasis and with so many of our other episodes, the OBG project is like a great place to start to get the quick summary. And then they even have additional reading for us or for our listeners to dive into the topic further. Absolutely. Um, and so if you also are part of their subscription service, OBG First, you can also create your own bookshelf so that you can have your articles to go back to. They'll also send you emails and things like that about the latest journal articles and findings so that you're always up to date on the most recent literature. If you're a chief resident, you can actually get OBG first for absolutely free for one whole year. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. There's a link where you can get signed up for OBG first. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we're going to be talking about informed consent. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? First, we'll talk about the definition of informed consent and also shared decision making. Um, we'll learn what the different portions of an informed consent process are, as well as the shared decision making process. And then finally, we'll understand and get into situations that require informed consent and also discuss those situations where informed consent is not required. I think this is a definitely a foundational and essential topic that really all of us should get a good grasp on. Yeah, absolutely. So Faye, kick it off. What is informed consent? What is shared decision making? Yeah, so let's start off with informed consent. So informed consent is part of both medical ethics and law, though the exact wording of the law and the definition may actually vary based on locality. Essentially, it means that a medical provider must tell a patient about all potential benefits, risks, alternatives to a medical procedure or course of treatment, basically document that that conversation has occurred and the patient has made a choice. In order to actually be able to obtain consent, there are a few things that we need. 
The first is we, of course, need a patient who is able to give consent. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that means. Um, and then, of course, we also have to make sure that the medical provider, ourselves, are presenting accurate information that includes the diagnosis, if it is known, the nature and purpose of the recommended interventions or treatments, and then, of course, the risk, benefits, and alternatives of all the options. Usually written consent is needed, and that way that just documents the conversation and the ultimate decision. What I want to highlight here is that while in most locations there needs to be a signing of some form, which is that documentation that we talked about, that itself is not informed consent. So getting your patient to sign a piece of paper is not informed consent. That piece of paper and that signing is actually just to document the fact that you had that conversation. So that conversation really is the key. Um, what about shared decision making, Nick? Yeah, so shared decision making is a key component of patient-centered healthcare. Um, it's a process, again, in which clinicians and patients work together to make decisions, select treatments, and do this all based on both evidence as well as balancing the risks and benefits of a course of treatment, and then finally also balancing in there the patient values too. What shared decision-making oftentimes I feel like it's boiled down to, which is not correct, is just like a menu of mm -hmm. everything that's available, and then the choice should only be on the patient, right? Yeah. Like if you have a patient with abnormal uterine bleeding and you're like, okay, well, we could do nothing, we could give you birth control pills, or we could take you to the operating room and do a hysteroscopy, or we could take your uterus out, right? Like, what do you want to do? That's not necessarily a shared decision, right? And it's not fair to the patient to kind of present options in that way. Um, similarly, like if you're inducing somebody, it's not helpful to discuss all of the induction options, right? Like you could go any of like 18 different ways, it seems like with the start of an induction, um, which we'll talk about next time around, <laughs> but it's not going to be helpful to, you know, lay all the menu out and then expect the patient in a snap seconds to decide what's going to be best for them. So it's the onus is on us as providers to discuss the different methods or the different courses of action in the context of that patient's preferences, as well as the patient's clinical situation to, again, come with a shared decision of what is going to be the best course of action for the patient. Faye, sometimes you get into these weird situations where informed consent or shared decision-making seems a little sticky. Right. And so the first situation that I wanted to talk about, which we had alluded to before, is when a patient lacks decision-making capacity. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about capacity, competency. I'm sure you know everyone has heard those terms being thrown around, right? So first of all, um, in order to make sure that all of our psychiatry colleagues are happy, remember that any physician has the ability to determine if a patient has capacity or not. You do not need to get a psych consult for this. And um, I know from firsthand experience, they will get very angry with you. <laughs> yeah. So psychiatry over, I don't know what their podcast would be called, but we have satisfied this for you. Don't come after the OBGYNs anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's get into a little bit about what is capacity and what is competency. Capacity is defined, I guess, through law and ethics through four decision-making abilities that constitute capacity. So these include understanding, expressing a choice, appreciation of what the clinical situation is, for example, and reasoning. Basically, it's a person's ability to use the information that they're given, make a choice that is congruent with their own choices and preferences in their life. 
Now, competency is sometimes used interchangeably with capacity, but technically it's a little bit different. It's actually a legal judgment that is informed by an assessment of capacity. So basically, it's whether or not an individual has the legal right to make their own decisions. And this is actually when you potentially do need to get a judge involved or the law involved. When do we assess capacity? So anytime you feel that there is some form of cognitive impairment of any cause, whether this is caused by dementia, whether it's caused by some type of traumatic brain injury, anytime you feel like somehow cognitive impairment um, may make it so that your patient is not able to make a decision for themselves. Um, and then also sometimes when a patient's decision is inconsistent with their prior decisions that they have made. How to assess capacity is a very large topic that probably requires its own podcast, but very briefly, it should be done with open-ended questions to try and understand if a patient has those four things that we talked about before, the understanding, being able to express a choice, appreciation, as well as reasoning for their decision. And there are a few validated instruments out there that we're going to post on our website, and that includes the MacArthur Competency Assessment Tool for Treatment, the Assessment of Capacity for Everyday Decisions, and Capacity to Consent to Treatment Interview. But obviously, you don't have to use these to assess capacity. Even if the patient is not deemed to have adequate capacity, they should still be engaged in their care as much as possible. So you can imagine, you know, having a patient who may be have a diagnosis of dementia, but still be able to engage in, you know, routine conversation. You should still try and speak to that patient, but of course also make sure that their caregiver um, or the person that they have appointed to help them make decisions um, is the one that's actually um, also there to help make those decisions. If, for example, you feel that a patient does not have adequate capacity, then we should identify an appropriate surrogate on the patient's behalf, either through a durable power of attorney or through family members, for example, if the patient hasn't previously designated a surrogate. And sometimes if there is a question to capacity or to a surrogate or any other questions, that may be a reason actually to consult your hospital's ethics board. The next situation is about minors. So talk to us about that, Nick. What happens with you know legal minors? Yeah, so minors are different state by state, and it's not necessarily that like, you know, someone who's 16 years old in Washington is different than a 18 year old in Pennsylvania, but states have different rules governing kind of the consent process for minors. And so it's important that you check kind of your own state's laws in this regard. Generally speaking, minors are not considered to have the capacity to make healthcare decisions on their own with the exception of cases that are defined by the law. Again, in some places, for instance in Washington, minors have all sorts of capacity to make decisions according to the law with respect to contraception, with respect to abortion care, and with respect to pregnancy care. In other states, there may be a requirement for parental consent or assent, um, and there may be times where physicians are required to notify either state agencies or parents when children seek to access different levels of care. So again, we can't be comprehensive on the podcast, but it is important, depending on where you're practicing, to know what the rules are for anybody under the age of 18. Some examples that kind of cross state lines are the roles of emancipated minors. Emancipated minors, in many cases, can make their own healthcare decisions, and there are special rules governing that particular circumstance. Um, in all cases, 
physicians or healthcare providers should engage the minor in their healthcare and discuss with the minor the benefits of bringing in their parent or guardian with respect to some of those healthcare decisions. Yeah, and you think about like a 14-year-old with a new diagnosis of pregnancy and all of the social support that's going to be needed, or even making that decision to terminate a pregnancy if that's their choice. That's a lot for a young person's shoulders. Um, and if they're not ready to tell their parents and you don't, you're not allowed to or don't need to tell their parents under the law, then still talking to them about kind of what they need for support is important. The last thing that I should make mention of is the rule of assent, which sounds very similar to consent, but is not quite the same. Again, in some places, minors are not able to consent, but they must be required to assent to a procedure, meaning they're giving implied consent after their parent or guardian has given the actual consent for them. So for instance, if you have a 17-year-old who falls in the definition of a minor and the parent has to consent for surgery, you can't do surgery on the 17-year-old in some jurisdictions unless you have their assent as well. So again, short version of this is check with your state and local jurisdictions rules on minor healthcare. That was a mouthful, Faye. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, I guess, move on to a different category that's kind of interesting, I think, which is situations that don't require informed consent. Right. And we previously talked about situations that do require informed consent, which is certain types of treatments, procedures, surgeries, all of those things. Situations that don't require informed consent, again, will vary from state to state. And so you should check with your local jurisdiction. But usually um, they fall under a few categories. The first of which is an emergency. So for example, if there's a person who is unconscious or in danger of death or serious outcomes like a loss of limb, loss of sight, whatever it may be, if medical care is not given, then informed consent may not be required. You can kind of see how, you know, if someone is about to have a car fall on them, you probably don't have to tell them the risks and benefits on alternatives of trying to pull them away from that falling car. I would hope so. I would hope so too. Other situations may be if there's an advanced directive stating that patient refuses certain types of care. So for example, if a patient has already signed an advanced directive stating that, you know, they do not want to be placed on nutrition that would prolong their life, for example, you don't necessarily need to talk to them again about the risks, benefits, alternatives of, of putting them on nutrition. And finally, the last situation is if there is a decision by a court that overrides that patient's decision. So again, when that's kind of where we talk a little bit about that capacity versus competency. So if a judge has decided that there is a decision a medical decision that should be done, but the patient does not agree or consent to that, that is a case where, in fact, informed consent does not need to come into play. Um, so I thought what we would do, Nick, is we would end this podcast by actually giving an example of talking about informed consent, and we would talk about a procedure that we commonly do now that we are maternal fetal me medicine fellows, which is to put in a cerclage. Let's say you have a patient who's coming in that you think needs a cerclage. Talk to me a little bit about how you would give them the information in order to obtain informed consent. This sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> I think first we've got to explore the reasons why, right? Why are we doing a cerclage? And make sure that the patient has the same understanding that I do of why we're doing this, right? So basically that's your history taking and then sort of coming together to say, okay, well, you have a short cervix now that we've seen on ultrasound and a history of a prior preterm birth. 
And because of that, you are now a candidate for an ultrasound indicated cerclage placement, for instance. So then you should bring it down to level and talk about what exactly that is, because I don't think prior to medical school or maybe even prior to residency, I knew what a cerclage was. Now it's a um, fancy French term and I did not take <laughs> French. In that case, you can just say something like a cerclage is a stitch that's placed in your cervix or the opening of the uterus. We do that through the vagina and it will remain there until about 36 to 37 weeks of pregnancy, at which point we'll remove it with the goal to prolong your pregnancy. And again, bringing something down to that simple type of level is important in obtaining informed consent so the patient actually knows what's going to happen to them as a result of whatever treatment this is. Faye, I guess we're moving on to benefits next. Yeah, so we then talk about why are we doing a cerclage? What is the benefit of doing this procedure? Breaking it down for the patient and saying that in this situation where you have a short cervix and a history of a preterm delivery, studies have shown that by placing a cerclage, we can decrease your risk of preterm delivery. We then talk about the risks, right? Um, unfortunately, everything carries a risk that we do. So with the cerclage, we know that regardless, there's st you still have some risk of preterm birth, even if we put that cerclage in. We are not never going to get away 100% um, taking away that risk of preterm birth. Also, even though the risks are small, there's always a risk of bleeding, risk of infection, risk of damage to the other organs around your cervix, like your bladder, your bowel, your uterus, etc. And then, of course, by putting in that stitch, there's always that small risk of breaking your water and of losing the pregnancy overall. And so by kind of breaking that down to patients, they can kind of weigh the risks and benefits in their own minds. And then, you know, I talked to them about alternatives, which is, of course, not placing the cerclage and just continuing the pregnancy as they previously did. And so by kind of laying all of this out for the patient, the hope is that you're able to get them to understand the procedure that you're proposing. Um, you're making a recommendation to them, obviously, and then Overall, now the fact that they are informed and they have this information, they can then make the best decision for them with your guidance. All right, Faye, I think that comes to the end of what we have to say on informed consent today. Why don't we try and summarize real quick? So we first started off the podcast by talking about what exactly is informed consent and shared decision making. And so we first said that informed consent is both part of medical ethics and law. And while the legal definition will change depending on where you are, it's essentially when a medical provider tells the patients about a treatment um, as well as the benefits, risks, and alternatives, discussing the diagnosis, the nature and purpose of the treatments, etc. And of course, to have informed consent, you must have a patient who is able to give consent, and then you also must document the conversation that you had with that patient. We also talked about shared decision-making as part of our intro, again, as a key component of patient-centered healthcare. A process in which you with your patient work together to make the decision. And through this informed consent process, come together looking at the evidence, the risks and benefits, and the patient's values to make the right decision for them. It's not handing out the menu of choices. It's really a process by which you make a recommendation, but allow your patient to know the alternatives that are there and why you make a recommendation. 
We then talked about some special situations, including when patients may lack decision-making capacity, and we also talked about the definition specifically of capacity as well as competency and laid out a few ways in which you can actually assess capacity and when you should do so. Remember, every physician has the ability to assess capacity. You don't need to call a psych consult. We talked briefly about a couple of special situations in this, including with minors. Minors, again, are not generally considered to have capacity to make healthcare decisions, but that depends on your local jurisdiction. So definitely learn the laws of the area in which you practice. Finally, we talked about situations where you do not have to get informed consent. And again, these can vary by state and locality, but usually this involves situations of emergency where someone may lose life or limb if some medical care is not given, if there's an advanced directive that was previously done, and also if there's a court decision for a certain type of medical treatment. All right. So that does it today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us or a correction to any of our prior episodes or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.